welcome back to Wake Up with Nubian Tigers Talk, a podcast brought to you by a group of Black Princetonians where we talk about issues impacting our Black communities. So, Ray, today we're going to be talking about some disturbing news coming out of the New York City jails. Mm -hmm. Many people know Rikers Island is one of the worst pretrial detention facilities on the East Coast. Before COVID, advocates were making pretty good progress towards convincing the city to shut it down. And then COVID happened. Yeah, that was a big part of the the current mayor de Blasio's campaign. But, you know, um, Michelle, recently Rikers has been in the news because of the exploding incidents of uh, suicide among the detainee population. And uh, with us today are Katrina Peters and Deborah Jordan. And they're going to help us talk about the mental health crisis Uh, among the uh, detainee population. We are welcoming to the show for the first time, Deborah Jordan, class of 75. Deborah received her BA in psychology from Princeton, a master's in psychology from Fordham University, and her ABD in clinical psychology also from Fordham. Debbie is enjoying retirement now, but before she retired, she was the chief of mental health services for Kingsborough Psychiatric Center in New York where she provided leadership for the admissions unit, the continuing treatment unit, and the geriatric unit. During one part of her career, she also worked for New York City Department of Health Prison Services, where she provided initial evaluations, mental health determinations, and crisis intervention for inmates at Rikers Island and the Brooklyn House of Detention for men. And Dr. Peters, Michelle, has been on the show a couple of times before, but for those who, uh, who have not you know, listened to her before or heard her before. Dr. Peters has received her medical degree from Howard University College of Medicine and UC Berkeley School of Public Health. She's the clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, Zuckerberg and San Francisco General Hospital and has been on their clinical faculty for over 20 years. Currently, she is the medical director of inpatient forensic psychiatry at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. She's also the president of Alameda Contra Costa County Medical Association, say that three times fast, and her local chapter of the California Medical Association. All right, so both of you sisters have experience working with a population that is in custody. Can you each tell us a little bit about how you have worked with pretrial detainees? And Debbie, since you're the first time on this show, let's start with you. Well, thank you, Michelle and Ray. It's an honor to be here. Um, yeah, I, I think that um, when I, I when I worked for the Department of Corrections, I did mental health pre-screenings um, for inmates who generally were referred by the correction officers because of uh, what they considered to be bizarre behavior, or if if the inmate had a significant mental health history, but in order for us to know that they had a mental health history, there had to be an initial medical screening. I mean, all inmates theoretically should have been screened by a medical professional, usually a nurse, you know, as to their physical history as well as their mental health history. But once they came to the intention of the mental health unit, Um, we screened to see whether or not they needed to be referred for psychiatric medication, whether they needed to be housed separately in the mental observation unit, and whether they needed to have continuous follow-up, even if they were in general population. So that's um, the nature of the services that were 
in effect at that time. I think that currently it's it seems that there's not as much of that going on as there needs to be clearly because of the the suicide the recent suicides there that that is just absolutely unacceptable it's incomprehensible that um the, that people are dying committing suicide you know in those numbers in a city correctional facility but the reason for that probably is um lack of resources that are being devoted to that population and it, it's really criminal uh yes, coin of, of phrase. <laughs> right. yes right. yes yeah. so we're going to come back to those resource issues um in a subsequent question because it's it's really an interesting question how much resources are we willing to dedicate to our um, population, particularly the pre-trial population that is merely being detained and not sentenced. So Katrina, let's move to you and uh, give us an idea of what kinds of experiences you've had dealing with that population. So um, there's two ways in which I have interaction with that population. Uh, primarily, um, my inpatient unit that I have at um, San Francisco General is a unit for patients who are in custody. And in fact, there are patients who are um, basically pretrial detainees. Um, they also, so they may come to my unit at any point where they meet the criteria for an involuntary psychiatric hold. So as uh, Dr. Jordan has said, you have where people are screened when they first uh, come in. And sometimes even if they have a history, they may not be acute enough at that time that they need emergent uh, psychiatric care. But there are some people who, while they are being evaluated, um, they may be very intoxicated. They may be quite frankly suicidal or psychotic and they may immediately get uh, placed on a psychiatric hole and sent to my unit. Other times people may come to the unit because during the time while they are in custody, they may um, develop where they become more depressed and then may become suicidal and may actually do something to harm themselves. Or maybe they were taking medications and they refuse to take them. Or there are many other circumstances that happens. But basically once they reach an emergency level, um, then they would come to my unit or the other place where I sometimes work was the psychiatric emergency services. That, that is a place where um, patients are sometimes who have been arrested are initially taken because there's some concern about whether they are too acute psychiatrically to be booked into the jail. Let me, let me ask you both. Um, when you're doing your screening, did you um, come across... Or, or should I say, did, were there certain conditions that seemed to be common among the population or was, you know, was each one so different that you wouldn't be able to categorize it as such? Well, I think in New York anyway, um, we have to look historically at the um, deinstitutionalization, um, which happened back in the 80s which supposedly was going to divert funds to the community to treat 
psychiatric patients. Let me get some and, clarity, Debbie. You're talking about the deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities? Of, of, yes, of yeah, psychiatric hospitals, yeah, inpatient services. As I say, the theoretical idea was to divert that money to the community and to put resources into the community so that psychiatric patients could live there as opposed to being on locked wards in, in the psychiatric facilities. But of course, the resources never made it where they were supposed to go. And so a lot of psychiatric patients wound up on the streets, which brought them to the attention of law enforcement. And so a lot of times the, the, in New York anyway, the jails substituted for the psychiatric hospitals. And, and it certainly was an unfortunate situation because of course the jails, especially places like Rikers Island are very demoralizing, dehumanizing places. And even those with the best, most intact psyches would have difficulty you know, navigating that system, just being exposed to that system. But, you know, there were an inordinate amount of people with, with um, psychiatric histories that came into the, the correctional system, you know, yeah. whereas in the past, they would have been on a psychiatric unit. What about you, Katrina? Uh, you find the same? Yeah, I find the same. Um, in fact, uh, this is something that I talk about a lot and try to bring to the attention of those um, who are planning for mental health resources for communities. Um, we have to acknowledge, as uh, Debbie said, that over the last 50 years or more, we, there has been a steady um, decrease in the number of inpatient beds and community placements for people with serious mental illness. Um, let me hear it refer to SMI or what, what have you. And for an example, California was one of the first, was the first state to have the state mental hospital system. And it was basically to take people out of jails and prisons. And um, being the first to start it, we also were the first under Reagan to start to deinstitutionalize. And again, as uh, Dr. Jordan says, we have now have a situation where no one is really taking responsibility for the actual needs of these patients to be able to successfully care for them in the community. Additionally, many of serious mental illnesses, um, people have a state where they don't understand or accept or have insight that they have a serious mental illness. And so therefore, um, at some point in time in their history of their illness, they may have to be treated involuntarily. And being treated involuntarily is a very difficult uh, situation in terms of for being able to do that um, safely. And if the laws of your particular state don't make that easily to do, then you have a situation where people may be treated briefly in an emergency room, it may be even inpatient, but as soon as they are not acute, they are then discharged out to the community where they can relapse again. Once they get into the jail and criminal system, and again, as Dr. Jordan described very eloquently about how 
um, people are out in the street. They don't have, you know, really uh, adequate places to live and to be cared for. They're, you know, sitting ducks for police intervention and they get into trouble. And so even though they have some programs such as um, that we have behavioral health court and drug diversion, there really is not enough uh, treatment that the communities, our communities have chosen to take and enough housing, especially in these urban centers, that we're able to keep these people from being under the eye of <clears throat> the police. And then once you get into the jail system, because of certain things about the criminal justice system, it becomes very difficult to get out of that loop. Thanks. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Debbie. No, I was just going to ask if, if it's the case in California, Dr. Peters, that um, involuntary treatment can be sought for uh, inmates in the correctional system, because that does not exist in New York. So if you have someone on medication, on psychotropic medication, or who should be on psychotropic medication, and they're refusing the medication in the jail system, they just don't get medicated. Nobody's going to take the effort to take them to court, you okay, know. So or I'll explain how that works. You're, you're, you're correct, but there are certain circumstances under which they can be treated involuntarily. There's the temporary situation where they are placed on involuntary psychiatric hold, 5150, 5250, et cetera, and they may be treated on a unit such as mine, and, um, and they may regain, um, you know, to be, their behavior may be more acceptable, they may be uh, better cooperative, but once they go back to jail, um, you're correct. There is nothing that they can be treated involuntarily specifically for that. However, there are two instances under which we do have involuntary treatment. One is if a person is considered incompetent to stand trial. And if they're incompetent to stand trial, um, and especially if it's due to their mental illness, then that the court can order involuntary treatment with the goal of supposedly restoring that person to competency, which could include medication. But that still doesn't necessarily completely answer um, the needs of the patient once they have, once they become competent to stand trial, then they can stop taking their meds again, which happens uh, pretty frequently. Also, we can't enforce medications actually in the jail. They have to come to the hospital if they won't take the meds voluntarily. The second situation is patients who they decide are not restorable to competency. And so they can't just leave them in the system. So then there's a process about converting them to uh, community or civil uh, commitments, conservatorships. And in that case, they can petition the court for, again, for involuntary medication. But again, while they are specifically in custody in the jail, um, mm -hmm. there's not a way because the jails are not approved places to give involuntary medications. Again, they would have to bring them to the hospital to get those medications. So there's just so many things that where the laws that we have where on one hand, we don't want people to be, um, you know, their rights to be taken away to live independently. 
but on the other hand, uh, many of the patients, at least that we see who fall in this, don't have the insight to understand their illness and how it destroys their lives when they're out. Debbie had referred to um, uh, Rikers Island um, early on in, in our discussion. And uh, after years of uh, no reportings of suicide, Rikers reported five suicides in the last nine months. And between July 2020 and September 2020, there were over 500 reports of self-harming. So Debbie, Katrina, what pretrial conditions might cause an inmate to contemplate suicide? The majority of, of our inmates in New York, in Rikers and in Brooklyn House of Detention and in, in all of the city correctional systems are Blacks and Puerto Ricans. You know, if we need, we want to talk about the conditions in which they lived, in which they grew up, that certainly may have contributed to whatever brought them into uh, the correctional system. You know, that's that's a precursor. Okay. And if you throw in prior psychiatric histories, um, sometimes significant schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, personality disorders, um, histories of trauma, and we all have histories of trauma being um, Black in this country. And so um, just the degradation that people are exposed to on a daily basis you know, that that's the background, that's the backdrop. And so you throw them into a, a deplorable place like Rikers Island that, that's overcrowded, you know, and, and we don't really talk that much about the impact of possible sexual activity that goes on, homosexual rape at times. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, if, if that is happening to an inmate, they're not likely to, you know, report that, certainly not to the mental health person, um, certainly not to the correctional officers. But, you know, that, that happens, that goes on in, in, our, in our jails and in our prisons. Mm -hmm. And so um, just the dehumanization and, and, and the fear, you know, there is a lot of fear understandably, you know, that one would experience being thrown into that, that kind of context, that environment, you know, so all of these things um, play a part in, in the, the despair and, and the depression and the hopelessness that inmates certainly feel, you know, those who attempt suicide or, or engage in self-harming behavior certainly those things would be um, pertinent for their their status at the time. Katrina? Yeah, there, there are, as Debbie says, there are so many um, instances, but we already know that when the highest risk of suicide um, is usually in the first 24 to 72 hours that people are um, arrested, and that, that's because one, there's the trauma of being arrested, two, of not knowing what's going on. Usually at that point, they haven't been arraigned yet. They don't know what's gonna happen. Three, if they were um, on some kind of uh, drug or alcohol, even if they mm -hmm. aren't like overtly mm -hmm. intoxicated, they may be withdrawing, they may be having um, 
other unanticipated uh, problems. Then there's the other reality. When we, especially we're talking about women, um, a, you know, significant number of women who are arrested are mothers. So they don't have access to their children. Sometimes they went through something traumatic for they went where the children were removed from them, um, you know, in the process of the arrest, um, being able to contact their families. So there are so many things that happen just in the first part, the trauma of being arrested. Then you have other things that happen along the way, as uh, Dr. Jordan is saying, you know, there could be um, not just a, uh, sexual assaults from their cellmates or these or the deputies. There also could be assaults or other um, actions with their other cellmates or cellies uh, where they're assaulted or not getting along or what have you. So there's just trying to interact and deal with that situation. Um, other triggers may be sometimes people may find out that re home uh, relatives have died, uh, their you know family, significant others while they're there in jail and there's not anything that they can do about it. Um, so there's so many other human things that you can think about um, that can be a real strain and a real stressor for people who are um, who've been placed in custody. And then when you're in a facility that's as unfriendly as Rikers Island, um, you know, I was reading at certain points, you know, they didn't have, uh, you know, there's no temperature regulation. People were there in the heat or in the summer, the heat was still on. I mean, there were so many other than just physically dealing with the food. You don't have any um, anything on your on your books that you can go to the commissary. So you have to deal with whatever uh, so-called nourishment that they give to you at the prison. So there are a lot of stress, lot of stressors, even for people who've been in jail before that can be triggers for where there may be an increased risk for suicide. And like I said, some of them you can almost anticipate when you know certain, um, certain times during their trial or pre-trial that they're gonna be at higher risk. How would um, being put in solitary confinement impact that risk? Well, I mean, it, it depends on the individual makeup. I mean, some people are put in solitary for their protection and they're happy to be there, you know, and 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 uh, because they, they would be at risk, you know, for Lord knows what from the other inmates. I, I remember, um, having, you know, uh, child predators in that category, you know, they, they definitely wanted to be in solitary confinement. But when it's, it's a punitive condition, you know, when they're put in solitary because of, of their behavior, that's a totally different story. And um, of course, the isolation um, would add to the other um, stressors that one would experience in in being incarcerated and um, not having the interaction with with your peers or even with, with officers for the most part um, yeah that that really would would um, cause someone to feel depressed and cut off and and hopeless and you know and those are situations and circumstances and emotions that do lead to suicidal and self-harming behaviors. So, so going back to um, the increase in suicides in Rikers, 
uh, it also coincide coincides with COVID nineteen, the 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 onset of COVID nineteen over the last year, year and a half, and um, you know, with you ladies talked about overcrowded conditions and lack of ability to isolate and uh, inadequate medical attention. So, uh, other than that, how does is that surprising to you, or uh, did you expect that uh, because of the pandemic? Well, I, I think that that one aspect that would contribute to that would because of the pandemic would be the lack of visitors, the lack of visitation from families during um, the COVID pandemics. So that contributed to the feeling of being uh, bereft of, of, of loved ones, of contact with family and friends and, and contributing also to more of the sense of isolation and the hopelessness and, and the despair. And then also, you know, the fear, I guess, of, of contracting COVID-19 in, in those horrendous conditions, you know, it, you know, the, the, the onslaught of, of um, stress and, and, and terror really uh, could certainly have, have contributed to the increase in suicidal behavior during that period. Katrina? I would like to also just want to reiterate what uh, Dr. Jordan was saying about isolation, particularly for women. Remember, the significant number of women who are incarcerated are mothers. And as when you said you went and visited there, some, you know, have to go to Rikers or have to go to whatever jail, um, wherever the women are, if they suddenly they're cut off from all their children coming to visit. They're cut off. It's much more difficult for them to even have phone calls or what have you to be able to communicate with them. So it was particularly stressful, I think, for many of the, the women, particularly those who were mothers, to have to uh, cope with the limitations that COVID had. And it's true for, for everyone. And, and it's, it wasn't just the um the family and friends even the attorneys weren't going to the jail for a while people had to mm -hmm. communicate only on zoom or when they could uh so it's it's been very difficult even for us here now in the hospital our hospital ward even now there is no in-person visitation for the patients who are on my unit i want to circle back around to the question of resources for a minute because resources is always, it's always an issue when we're talking about uh, the incarcerated population, even when they're pretrial detainees, not, you know, some people don't mm -hmm. care about uh, inmates after they've been convicted. They just throw their hands up and say, well, they did a crime, they should be punished. But the population that we're talking about is pretrial. They haven't been found guilty mm -hmm. of anything. They've just simply been arrested. Um, and so I'm curious from the mental health perspective, why is this this resistance to providing resources for this particular population in mental health in general, but also for the, the pretrial detainee population? Is that not a rhetorical question? <laughs> hey. well, it could be rhetorical, but I mean, so what, from, from your perspective as, as people in the field, where's the biggest resistance in society to providing the resources necessary to deal with the population? 
Who's resisting that? The I, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I, I think this is certainly a larger and broader topic, but I'm going to repeat mm -hmm. what uh, one of the doctors that I used to work with, not on this unit, but, and this was be how he got out of, out of jury duty. He said they were arrested, so they must be guilty. Mm -hmm. Now, although he was saying that tongue in cheek, I do think there is a, a significant part of that in the general population that does not differentiate between those who have just been accused of a crime and those who've been convicted of a crime. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then in the general mental health field, I have to keep reminding them that you have a significant part of your uh, community that you're supposed to be treating who at some point in time um, have been in custody and have some ties to the legal system. That, that's invisible to them. And in fact, I, right now I'm looking out my window and I can see the community unit right across, um, you know, right across the way from me. It's like on another wing, but I can see, but we might as well be on the moon. It's not like these people don't come from our communities, right? I mean, they're, well, they're that's the, the point. They do come <laughs> from our communities. And, and as we all very well know, there, there's not an abundance of resources coming our way. And then when you add to the fact that, you know, these are the disenfranchised, these are the people, you know, who should be locked away. You know, it, the community, the larger community perceives that it's safer for them to have these people locked away. And so why should they waste money and resources and staff on, on these people um, who are getting their just desserts. I mean, I, I think that's the mentality. I always find that fascinating because eventually they're gonna come out. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what I find fascinating. Well, I, <laughs> no, I, I'll tell you what I find fascinating is that when I visited WAC, the times I visited Rikers Island, there were no white inmates there, yeah. okay? Everybody I saw was black or brown. Yeah. Yeah, everybody exactly and if you have exactly. the means if you have the means you don't have to be you don't have to spend any time in institutions and places like Rikers Island right because right. you can post b-a-i-l because you can post bail and it's uh, the whole suicide COVID uh combination has been fascinating because for what three or four years um the social justice advocates were trying to get cash bail eliminated so that people who did couldn't mm -hmm. were simply being warehoused at Rikers and other city jails simply because they didn't have money could be released from prison, uh, released from the jail pending trial, um, so that they could you know because they haven't been found guilty of anything. And for a while we was we were seeing some success in that area. Um, Turn of loose Bruce. Yeah, Bruce Wright, Judge well, Bruce this Wright. is you know way after <laughs> Bruce Wright, right? But but this mm -hmm. is. Um, so in the past, this is during the Blasio administration. Mm -hmm. um, and initially the judges were actually complying with the no cash bail uh, situation. But now we find that many of these inmates who are committing suicide are in there because the judges have gone back to posting these ridiculously high bails, right? right? right. So I don't know if yeah. are aware of the situation we have out here in San Francisco where you know they want to recall um, our current DA, um, because they believe he's too soft on crime or what have you, because he's been a big proponent of trying to um, either no cash 
bail or to have people to make the decision that people can post bail because you know previously a lot of times there'd be situations where you couldn't even post bail and although that's appropriate in some sometimes it's not okay i think that society is really torn right now about what we want because at the end of the day it's not like judges act completely on their own with no input from the communities the communities decide who they want in jail and who they don't yeah but you know that's so easily manipulable uh so for example when the cash bail um advocacy was successful and people started being released the new york city police department immediately began a disinformation campaign to show that people were getting released and committing more crime and it simply wasn't true Mm-hmm. Um, and even just recently, um, with the, you know, everyone's afraid that with defund the police, there's an increase in crime, not to mention the fact that no police have, have ever been defunded, but, um, you know, it's interesting to just to, just to, to pose, um, one day, uh, de Blasio said, showed a graph, New York's at the lowest crime rate in the past five years. And 45 minutes later, the then governor Cuomo released a statement saying that there's a crime wave going on. That's right. right. That's right. So both of That's those right. can't be true. But at the same time. At the same he time, was, right? But he yeah. was the one who was probably perpetrating. Yes, he was the criminal. <laughs> yes, he was the criminal. But it's just course, interesting. Yeah, Cuomo had no credibility. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, it's just interesting how if the public, you know, sees a five-year-old killed and, of course, they don't want that to happen. Nobody wants that to happen. But why is it happening is different from, you know, the other social justice reforms that are trying to be accomplished. And I do think a lot of times the pretrial detainees bear the brunt of that because the public sees them, they're encouraged to believe that they're dangerous. And so, yes. of course, hopefully. criminals. Yeah. 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 Uh, one, one question to, to you, uh, uh, Debbie and Katrina. Do you guys in and when you're sitting down and you're talking to these uh, these people who are either in pretrial or who are part of uh, uh, you know your unit that you have to uh, uh, interrogate or talk to or what have you, um, do they share their issues with incarceration with you? I mean, do you get a sense of what it is that they're going through, and how can you guys individually help that person? Mm, good question. Well, when I was working at um, in the correctional facilities in New York, um, we would meet regularly with with the inmates who were on the mental observation unit, and we developed a relationship with them so that it would be um, more likely that they would open up and really talk about what they were experiencing um, when. People were just coming in because the correction officers felt they were acting strangely or, um, well, in some instances, there were inmates who would come in because they were drug seeking, but um, they would be less likely to be open about their experiential um, circumstances because, you know, the ones who were drug seeking were looking for, medication. And so they weren't necessarily very introspective. Um, 
you know, I, you know, I think it depends on whether or not the the inmate felt safe enough to to share, and and certainly if if there were a question of um, possible retribution from correction officers, for example, if if there had been some untoward interaction, that it, it's very unlikely that that um, that would have come to our attention. Yeah, so they have to be circumspect about what they what they're reporting to us, as it relates to you know the circumstances of being in the jail. So my situation is a little different in that a lot of the patients that I see or are sent to my unit also um, probably get diagnosed with serious mental illnesses, and so mm-hmm. a lot of times. There are things that are happening to them or they perceive as happening to them at the jail, but often it winds up being at a more delusional level. And so sometimes it becomes difficult to separate out um, what's actually going on there for them and what's part of their illness and how they interpret it. I mean, there are grievance forms. In fact, one of the deputies today handed me a form that I don't even handle, but, you know, because of some other situations, he felt it was better handled by me um, because they have a complaint procedure, but probably for patients who, or inmates who are not um, seriously mentally ill, it becomes more complicated when they submit those forms because people aren't gonna just say that, oh, this is just delusional. There may be an element of reality that was there, but it was so um, out of the ordinary of what someone who is not suffering from serious mental illness might write that he could not even figure out how to deal with it. Now, that being said, um, they also are complaints that they can raise if there's a complaint of where they've been sexually um, assaulted or inappropriately dealt with by the deputies. And if that complaint happens, there's a whole big protocol they have to go through. But again, I don't think that it represents all of the people who are being assaulted or being inappropriately dealt with in the jails. Because I think that some of those um, inmates um, are very afraid to um, write anything and say anything, and they may only hear about it after they're out of jail. You know, um, this this reminds me, as so many of our shows do, of the iceberg uh, in our mm-hmm. conversations. I mean, mm-hmm. the 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 big issue really is what's the situation of mental health in our communities. Period. Uh, right. Because people who are in pretrial detention are just a segment, uh, one mm-hmm. of the segments of our communities, and hopefully. I know people don't like to talk about mental health issues because it's scary, but uh, particularly now as a result of COVID, you see so many people acting outside of themselves, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Well, uh, in some cases, they are acting exactly <laughs> like themselves. You know, that is, it's an <laughs> issue. Can, if I use that again, outside. <laughs> it's an issue that we need to um, be thinking about maybe talking about uh, a little more thoroughly. But mm-hmm. at the moment, I want to thank Dr. Katrina Peters and Dr. Deborah Jordan for being uh, our wonderful guest today and spending a few minutes talking to us about uh, a you. population that's important to us, but that mm-hmm. people don't really care about. And we want people to start caring about this population. So sisters, yes, because they, they are us. They are yeah. us and they're right. from yes. our communities and they are relatives. And they are us. Yeah. And you know, you know, 
you might be one of them because there is nothing <laughs> to keep that's from right from being um arrested i had a doctor mine who was arrested um last year on some bogus something or another and had to spend the driving night. while black yes you absolutely. Know, we all do it yeah, you know, yeah so we're all susceptible we, and we vulnerable are. And who knows what that trauma would cause us to uh, do? Oh, I lose life. my mind. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I one fifty. <laughs> I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, sisters. Well, thank you so much for yes. uh, joining us. This, thank you, Debbie. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having us. And thank we'll have to have you back again, Katrina. We're gonna have to start paying Katrina soon. <laughs> She's, she's oh, just, she didn't. She didn't get the wake up. Week. She didn't get the wake up T-shirts I sent her. Oh, I'll have to check the UPS. You know, you know how that DeJoy is, Louis DeJoy. Everything is all jammed up. <laughs> Michelle, since the January sixth insurrection took place at the Capitol building and involved many members of law enforcement and the military, we wanted to get the perspective of Black military veterans of that dramatic incident, as well as their own personal experiences being Black in the military. Alicia Christie, Princeton class of 77, and David Steigman, class of 75, will be the guests on our next podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, visit our website, NubianTigersPodcast.com. In addition to the podcast, we also post a resource page for each subject to provide additional sources of information. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at NubianTigers, written as one word. We're also on YouTube on the Nubian Tigers podcast channel. Our podcast is hosted by Anchor FM, but if you have a favorite podcast app, we're probably on it. Just look for the Nubian Tigers talk. Looking forward to sharing some knowledge with you next time. Wake up, wake up, wake up.